Well, I haven't been in a worship service in a little while when we've sung the song Shout to the Lord. Um, I love that song. I think it came out when I was uh, about a junior in college, and I remember when it did, and I was involved in crew, and there was about 500 students at Auburn that were involved in crew, and we would sing that song. It was like everyone's like hair would stand up and your, your, you know, whatever hair I had uh, at that time, which is a lot more. And, uh, but it just felt like the Holy Spirit was so present. I remember that moment singing that song, and I was actually crying <laughs> this morning. Um, just thinking about the faithfulness of God over time and how he kind of marks our lives with different songs and different moments. And then I remember singing that song. Oh, sorry. Um, and... <laughs> In China, um, it was one of the songs that we would sing a lot, and I would listen to it on my headphones. I was walking around looking at the, the seas of people who don't know Christ and have no opportunity to hear him. And what really struck me as I was singing the song this morning was that it's a God's, God is always at work. Um, sometimes I look back on myself in college and even my time in China, and I wonder, like, what did I know? What was going on in my life? I feel like there's so much I've learned since then. But God really and truly is at work in our hearts in high school and in college and in your 20s and 30s and 40s and beyond. And, and just seeing the faithfulness of God and that it's, it's as God includes us um, in his kingdom, in his love for us, he includes people like me and people like you into his kingdom and as he continually reassures us of his love for us, he then calls us out to follow him on mission. That's what, sorry, I'm a little emotional this morning. Um, always embarrasses my kids when I cry like this. But, but, but I think about the goodness of God. Like, it's incredible that God, in this passage, really, this is like God saying, I open doors that no one else can open. And once I open them, no one else can shut them. And he has opened a door for me and you into his kingdom. And that, that inclusive love is what drives us forward and, and, and enables us to do and, and walk through really hard, really hard things, really hard times. Um, so I'll tell a less emotional story now. Um, so back to my time at uh, Zion National Park, which I mentioned last week. We were on a hike called the Subway, which is this epic hike. It's really, really hard. Our whole family was doing it. If you heard the sermon last week, you'll remember. But if you didn't, I'll refresh uh, for you. So we're hiking. It's a 15-mile hike. We're on mile 12, hiking back. It's over 100 degrees. It's getting super hot. And the, the last part of the hike that you have to do is you have to hike up out of the canyon where the sun is facing that, the wall of that canyon to get out. That's your 14th mile out. And to get to that part of the trail, which you have to do to get back to your car or you'll die, basically, you have to find this exit from the trail that's not very obvious. And we almost missed the exit to that part of the trail to get back to our car. And there was this guy hiking with us named Todd that he kind of came out of nowhere in the 12th mile, and he really helped us a lot. And he was the one that helped us see how to get off the trail and get up the canyon face to get to the car. Todd basically... Uh, saved us. I was so grateful for Todd's intervention in that moment, uh, telling me to, to take, the, take the right off the trail, and I, I was not at all upset with him that he told me to change my direction in that situation. And I liken that to God's love and care for us, that oftentimes we're just moving forward 
we think we know what we're doing, but we're actually heading into dehydration and heat. And God says, hey, you should take a right. Uh, you should get some rest. Well, two days later, we were going on another hike as a family. We had four hikes in the park that we really wanted to do. The next one we really wanted to do was Observation Point, which is a seven-mile hike. It's a lot easier. And you drive to this parking lot where you can hike out to the highest point of the canyon, and you look out over all of Zion Canyon at sunset, and you can see for literally like 50 miles. It is absolutely gorgeous. Well, when we got to the parking lot, we noticed that we were the only car there, which is super weird because Zion is one of the most visited parks in the country. And so we were like, that's, that's really odd. There was actually one other car leaving, and they pulled over, and they said, did you guys hear there are mountain lions on the trail? And we were like, no, did not. Like, we were advised, unless you have a gun, you shouldn't hike the trail. Well, it's illegal to have a gun in a national park, uh, and I don't really carry a gun when I hike. I know some people do. But anyway, I didn't have a gun, so we were like, oh, man, ah, such a bummer. But we valued our lives more than the hike, and so we decided we were going to go back. Uh, it was a hard decision. As we're walking back to the car, another car pulls in the parking lot, and the guy rolls down the window, and it's Todd. And we're like, what? Todd, how you doing, man? And he had told us he was going to do that hike, but on a different day, and he had changed his plan. And we told him about the mountain lines, and he was like, man, that is just ridiculous. He's like, I've done this hike like eight times. This is a great hike. If you hike with me, you know, we'll be fine. Let's hike together. So, Todd, you have, Todd hikes with us the whole way? Um, we don't have a picture of Todd. We have him only from the back. I never, we don't have a picture of his face. And we never got his phone number. And so we actually have conversations as a family wondering whether or not he was an angel. Um, I don't know. But, like, it's one of those things where, you're like, if I've met an angel, it was probably Todd. He had some bogus story about being an IT developer in Las Vegas. We were like, nah, that's probably not true. But... But anyway, so Todd, you know, he walked with us the entire way, all the way to the rim, took pictures with our family. Mainly, he took pictures of us. Um, and then we walked all the way back with him after dark with our iPhone flashlights, and he was there the whole time. Even the, and, and we just suddenly, because Todd was there, we were like, there's probably no mountain lions. You know, it's probably fine. Don't even really know this guy. The point is that Todd, you know, for us, God, God sent Todd to us, I think, in that situation. I'm not saying he was an angel, but... But, you know, in that way, Todd is also an illustration, I think, of what the Lord does for us. Like, when, when God calls us to do something, he always goes with us. And, and just his presence being with us and him saying, I'll be with you, makes all the difference for us as we walk along life's road. So this is a, a letter. Thank God for the church at Philadelphia. I mean, the last three weeks have been you know, a lot of blistering heat from Jesus about things that you need to repent of in your life. Um, this is not that kind of a letter. This is one of the two letters written of the seven where there's no re reprimand, there's no rebuke, there's only encouragement, and basically Jesus is saying, just keep on going. You're doing a great job, and I'm with you, okay? This is a highly encouraging letter that God writes for us, for the Church of Philadelphia, and for us. And so the three things we're going to talk about this morning are mission begins with God's authority— God's authority, mission continues with patient endurance, and mission ends with a new name. All right, so let me pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much for your love, and I, lo I love that you, um, before you call us to go anywhere, you always say, I'm going to go with you, and you always reassure us that you love us. I pray that that inclusive love that you have for us 
would really resonate in our hearts this morning, and I pray that because of that love, we would follow you into hard places. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, the first point this morning is mission begins with God's authority, uh, and that God has included us authoritatively into his kingdom, verses 7 and 8. It begins with God's authority. So the first way God shows his inclusive authority is by sending church angels. Okay, that's kind of a weird point. But throughout these seven letters, I've, I've kind of drawn your attention to it before, John actually writes the letter, or Jesus writes the letter through John to the angels of the churches of these places, okay? That is highly atypical of what we would expect. Um, but, but apparently, one way that God wants to show his inclusive, authoritative love for his churches is he sends us angels that somehow administer his rule and his reign over the churches. There's nothing quite like saying, I love you and I include you in my kingdom as giving our church or giving churches their own angels. It's like a way of God saying, yeah, you're involved in the battle, you're in my kingdom, you're part of the kingdom outpost, and I'm going to station my angels with you wherever you go. There's more evidence of having church angels than personal angels. I think there could be personal angels. But certainly, we have evidence here that, that churches have angels, which is amazing. You know, we have uh, a lot of evil in the world. We talk about evil a lot in the world, and we should because we need to be aware of the evil that is happening around us. And we're, we need to be aware of demons and, and all that is happening to, to come against us. But far more do we, we need to be aware of the angels that God sends and the power of Jesus over his church to protect us and to keep us. This idea of God sending out angels goes back at least to Exodus 3, where Moses sees the burning bush and God reveals his name, Yahweh, to Moses. And he says, I am that I am. Now, certainly this speaks to the self-sufficiency of God, that God doesn't need anyone. He is who he is, and he doesn't need us, and we can't change him. He can change us, but it doesn't work the other way around. It certainly speaks to that, but I am that I am also speaks to, a lot of commentators believe, that within the Hebrew, if you read it, it means that I am God, and I call the armies of heaven to be. I know there's a lot in that. It's hard to get into it, but a lot, of, a lot of scholars see what God is doing is he's preparing Moses. He's about to go to Pharaoh. He's about to go to Egypt. And God is saying, Moses, listen, I'm the one that calls the heavenly armies to be. I am, and I call at my disposal all of this power to be on your side. And you see the angelic forces at work with the ten plagues and the bringing down of Egypt and the freeing of the slaves and all of that. Well, Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, and Jesus still sends angels to his people. He still sends angels to his churches. And whenever God includes someone into his kingdom, we just saw people that became members of a church this morning, our church, right? And we now, they're now part of our church, and God says, I send my angelic forces to be with you on your behalf. Now, there's a lot of mystery to what that means. I didn't have a class on angelology at RTS. Maybe we should have. They're in the Bible a lot of places. There's some mystery, but there is no mystery that God sends angels to help his people. 
And that's one way that God includes us in his kingdom. The second way God shows his inclusive authority here is by holding the key of David. The key of David. When I first read through it, the letter this week, that just that struck me. What is that? What is the key of David? Well, David was Israel's greatest king, and he exercised the greatest dominion over the nation of Israel geopolitically at that time. And so what that meant is that David had absolute authority. And if David said, you are in Israel, then you were in. He was the king. It was an edict. It happened. You were now part of the country, part of the nation. If David said that you're out, then you were out. It was authoritative. It's whatever David said. He held the key to Jerusalem. He held the key to the people of God at that time. Well, Jesus exercises that kind of dominion, but it's much greater than David. Jesus exercises dominion over all of his people, all of his kingdom. And what it says there later is that Jesus, when he says, if I open the door, no one can shut it, and if I shut the door, no one can open it, Jesus is talking about his kingdom. And he's saying that I am inviting you into my kingdom, and once I have welcomed you into my kingdom, once I have called you and you have come here, then no one can take you out of my kingdom. Your place and your status as a citizen in my kingdom is secure. Once I open the door and invite you in, the door is open. Once the door is closed, no one can snatch you out of my hand. This is the inclusive authority of God who shuts and opens doors. This inclusion into God's kingdom, that God has opened the eternal door of his kingdom for us should compel us outward into mission. We want more people to experience this inclusive love of God, to experience what it's like to be invited into the kingdom of God, into a kingdom that cannot fail. But extending this welcome of the gospel, this inclusion of the gospel, is not an easy thing. And so the second part of this letter teaches us that mission continues with patient endurance. Or because God has included us in his kingdom, we can endure and we can witness. We can endure and we can witness. First of all, we can endure. Patient endurance is one of the most common phrases in the book of Revelation. It happens in the very initial chapter, like the preface of the letter, patient endurance. It's in verse, it's chapter 1, verse 9. It's found throughout Revelation. It's one reason why I titled this series, Faithful to the End. Patient endurance as we walk through hard things as a church. Christ is our Redeemer and King. He has included us in his kingdom. That does not mean life will be easy. Life is still going to be hard, but because we have been included and loved by him, we can endure. We can follow him along the way. He's with us every step of the way, like Todd was for our family. So verse 8 frames the, the second section of the passage where he says twice, the second time he says, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. The first time he references this open door, he's talking about including us into the kingdom of God, that we have been included and no one can take us out. The second time he brings up this reference, it's a reference to mission. He's saying, now I have set before you an open door. And you can walk through that door, that door of mission. 
God is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, I have opened a door for you in mission. You will be fruitful. There will be people that will come to know me through you. Only God knows who they are and what that means. But God has opened up a door of fruitfulness for his kingdom. He is saying, I have opened a door for you, and I am assuring you that my door is open for other people to walk through as you continue to suffer for my name and continue to testify to the gospel. So we can endure, and we can endure two different things in this passage. Verse 8, it says, we can endure exhaustion. We can endure exhaustion. Verse 8, he says, I know that you have but little power. Notice this is not a rebuke. Okay, when I get really tired, sometimes I feel like God must be disappointed in me. And maybe because I'm so tired that I've done, I've done something wrong and I haven't maintained my margins and looked at all the lights on the dashboard. And I know all of the intuitive emotional rhetoric. I've read books on it. But the fact is we get tired. We get tired. We're human beings. Psalm 103, 14 says he remembers we are dust. Isaiah 40, 30, 30 to 31 says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men will fall exhausted. And I know many of you are exhausted. I talked to several of you this morning that said, told me the first thing, I'm really tired, man. My kids aren't sleeping. We've been sick for like three weeks. And God knows you get tired. He knows that you are exhausted. And he doesn't, he doesn't bring a rebuke onto you for your exhaustion. He loves you, and he calls you to endure exhaustion Believing that you won't always be there, God will renew your strength eventually. You're not always going to be exhausted. God's not angry with you because you're tired. That doesn't help when we're tired to think, God's mad at me because I haven't rested well. That's not it. God cares about you. He's restoring you. And he actually predicts for you that you will be exhausted in life as a human being and as you run the race. One thing that exhausts us is because we are seeking to follow Jesus. And sometimes it's really hard. We have to walk through really hard things following Jesus. And Jesus says, I know that you're exhausted and you have little power, but I'm going to restore your strength. The second thing we can endure is exclusion. We can endure exclusion. Verse 8 Excuse me, let's move to verse 9. I'll come back to verse 8 in just a second. He says, Behold, I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. And then he goes on for a second. I just want to give you some context for what in the world is going on there. Okay, the synagogue at the time, most of these believers had become Christians out of the synagogue. They, had, they were Jews and they had converted. And now... They're Christians, and now they go to church, not the synagogue. They would like to go back to the synagogue, but they are being excluded from the synagogue by people that are their family members, by their friends, by the Jewish leaders. And so even though God has included them in his kingdom, and he says, I have opened a door for you, and I have provided a place for you, that is not analogous for their experience on earth with the synagogue. In fact, because God has included them in his kingdom, they are excluded from the synagogue. They are excluded from the community that they had known. They are excluded by family and friends, and it's been really hard for them. 
And they're tempted to believe that their exclusion on earth is also what is happening in heaven with God. And what God is saying is, no, no. As you are excluded on earth for my name, you need to know for sure more than ever that you are included in my kingdom. You are included by me even though you may be excluded by others. People that you love, people that you looked up to, people that you still love and wish that they would come to know me. It's incredibly painful if you've been rejected by friends or family because of your faith in Jesus. And some of you have been. Some of you have been outright rejected for following Jesus by people that you love, people that discriminate you, people that exclude you for the name of Christ. Others of you have not been officially excluded by people, but your faith in Jesus has created such a social tension for you in your life that you don't know where you stand with people constantly. You don't know where you stand with your friends in middle school or high school or college. Um, Because of your faith in Christ, it's put relationships in a very difficult place. And you need to know that when Jesus sees you suffering exclusion or maybe exclusion, the awkwardness of maybe not being excluded or maybe being included, whatever the case, Jesus sees you and he says, I love you and you are included by me. Don't dare think that the way you're being treated by the synagogue or by your friends or by your family in any way corresponds to how I treat you because I love you and I include you in my kingdom. So we can endure exhaustion, we can endure exclusion for the sake of Jesus. So we can endure because of our inclusion in the kingdom. And there's a second thing that we can do. We can witness. We can witness The first thing it says in verse 9, it says, as it goes on, it says, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Wow. So what we're going to witness is unlikely conversions. Unlikely conversions. From people who hated you. For Christ's sake, they will come and they will acknowledge at some point. And this is not a um, Philippians 2, 10 and 11 kind of acknowledgement where at the end of time, there will come a time at the very end when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Because at that point, it will be so ridiculously apparent that Jesus is Lord that everyone will be forced to acknowledge it because it will be so obvious and apparent. But that is not repentance. That is begrudging acknowledgement. What this is talking about is not that. This is talking about a this is talking about real conversions from people before the end that that did exclude you, that because you have believed in that moment that you are included by Christ and you are loved by Christ, that you have been able to not probably perfectly, but in some way to love them and to show them the gospel, to show them the love of Jesus. And somehow, over time, there's a number of these people who used to be classified as a synagogue of Satan who will come and bow before your feet and will confess that indeed the gospel is true. That's amazing. It's amazing that God's love can resonate so deeply in us and his people, 
Or maybe, I know sometimes for me, this is why God calls us to love people as a church, okay? There are times when I am not loving people very well, and I find myself really struggling to do it. I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be able to love everybody perfectly well all the time. I can't, all right? But as a body, as a church, as God's people, we can love well. We can love in a way Even when we're being excluded by the world, we can love in a way that shows the inclusive love of the gospel of Jesus. Psalm 27, 13 comes to mind here where it says, I believe we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We often think that promises of God, we think about eternity and them coming true one day, and that's awesome. We should think about that. But there are some promises of God that are going to happen before then. And this is one of those promises that you will see unlikely conversions and we will see unlikely conversions. The second thing we will witness from the Lord, along with unlikely conversions, is spiritual protection. We'll witness spiritual protection. So verse 10 is difficult to interpret. There's a lot of interpretations out there, and I respect other interpretations, okay? so And you'll find that a lot in Revelation. I mean, there's a lot of things where we're like, I mean... I'm going to do my best here, but I respect other brothers and sisters who might interpret it differently. Um, A number of people, as you well know, interpret a passage like this, being kept from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth, as meaning something about a pre-tribulation rapture of three and a half or seven actual calendar years and things like that. Uh, Rapture followed by a tribulation period. Um. I think the best way to interpret this is not to go literal and to think about actual years, whether it's three and a half or seven. Um, I think the best way to interpret this is to keep in in mind the language that is used here. The most important thing to understand here about this passage is not the number of years or the time period, but that there are certain trials that are going to come on the earth that God's people, God's true people, are going to be protected from. Like, you're going to have to walk through a lot of hard things as a Christian But there are some things that are going to happen in this world that you are not going to have to walk through. That's really good news. (laughs) Okay, like towards the end of time, God is going to turn up the heat. He's going to turn up the heat on people who don't yet believe in him. And he's going to turn up the heat on people who have apostatized. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he wants to give them the opportunity to, to repent and to come to know him. But he's not going to put his church, he's not going to put his, his, his church, of the, the people that truly confess Christ in the church, those he knows, he's not going to put them through the same trials at the end of time that he's going to put everyone else through. This trial is kept for people who have not kept God's word, verse 8, who have denied his name. It's a trial that will come who have left the church on those who have left the church. Some of this trial has to do with people who have committed apostasy. And again, I want to remind you that the protection that God gives for his people is not an ultimate protection. You can't read this passage and think that God is not going to call you to walk through hard things. He will. But you are called to understand that there are certain hard things that he is not going to call you to walk through because he's protecting you as his children who confess his name. And the desire in the trial that God is going to bring on the earth 
is that these people would come to their senses and they would walk through the open door of the gospel that God has for them. So this passage begins with a past inclusion by Christ in his kingdom that compels us forward in mission. It continues on with that inclusion enabling us to endure, endure exhaustion, endure exclusion. It enables us to witness unlikely conversions, spiritual protection, and then it goes on into the future where mission ends, where we are given a new name. Mission ends with a new name. In the end, God will write his inclusion on you and on me. It will be unmistakable. God will actually put his name on you and me and on his church. There are three vivid pictures here at the very end of the passage that all signify this inclusion that is unmistakable and irrevocable. The first picture is this placement of a pillar, the placement of a pillar in verse 12, that we are included structurally in God's kingdom. It says in verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To say that you're a pillar in God's kingdom means that you are an essential part. You're not an afterthought. You're not on the side somewhere. You're brought and you, you, you bear weight-bearing load. You, you, if there's an earthquake, and you can actually look at the picture out in the lobby that Jamie Jones did for us. It's based on the ruins at Laodicea. When there's an earthquake, in that time, what's left of the structure at the end of the earthquake is the pillars. They're still standing oftentimes. And God is saying, you're so essential to who I am in my kingdom that I'm including you as a pillar in my kingdom. The second picture is there's a promise of permanence, a promise of permanence. It says in verse 12, he shall never go out of it. He shall never go out of it. That's a superlative statement. We're taught in conflict with our spouses to never use the words never and always because they're never true. Um, and, but God can use superlatives because he, he's the truth. He tells the truth. And he says superlatively, you will never go out of my kingdom. I put my promise on you. You'll never go out of it. And then finally, the, the last picture for us is this picture of three names. Three names. And this threefold giving of a name is this absolute, without any question, way of God saying, you have my name. You'll have my name written on you. Before we get to those names, I was thinking uh, this week about the power of the power that is invested in the person, the parent, to give the child their name. The, the power and the right to do that, and this, it's this giving of a name, of course it has to do with the name itself, what the name is, but it's more than about just the individual who's being given the name it's about this sense of belonging that is given by the parent, by right, into the family. And so the fact that God is doing the naming of you matters. It means you belong to him and that he has the right to name you. The first name is, it says, 
All in verse 12, these are all in verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God. God is going to write his own name on us. Second name is in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. This is a little bit weird maybe for us to think about, but God is going to write the name of his city, his eternal city, the new city on us. We're not just being prepared for the city. The city is being prepared for us. Isn't that amazing? That you don't just get to go there, but the city's actually being made for you to be there. It's got your name on it. And then the final one is my own new name. So there's some new name for Jesus that we don't know yet. And Jesus is going to write that name on believers when we get to heaven. All of these as a symbol of what? You are mine This is absolutely true. You are included in me and in my kingdom. If you're included in me, this is is even greater than being included in God's kingdom. This is saying that you are united with Christ himself. If you're united with Christ, then of course you can never leave his kingdom. Of course you can never be left or forsaken by him. He would have to forsake himself. And of course, that makes no sense. So God in his sovereignty included us in the past. He included us in the past and called us to mission. In the present, we continue on with patient endurance, and we endure and we witness, and then in the end, we'll receive a new name. We'll receive these these pictures that will be put on us of a pillar and the superlative promise that I will never leave you, you'll never leave this city, and the names of God that are being put on us. So each of these seven letters concludes with the same statement. I haven't brought attention to this yet. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven of the letters, it's either the very last sentence or in the very last section, okay? What this means is that, as you well know, you can listen to God's word preached, you can listen to encouragement from God, and you cannot hear it. You can absolutely not hear it. You can be distracted. It can be stolen by unbelief. All kinds of things. You can be, it can be choked out by the pressures of life. But Jesus is saying, have ears to hear the message. Whose responsibility is it to hear? It's yours. Jesus is giving us these letters. He's saying, here's the word. It's given to you. Can you hear me speaking? You know, so often our, our lives are so busy. One of my favorite possessions that I have is my Bose noise-canceling headphones. Man, I love those things. I love it because I get so distracted when I'm trying to get something done, but it helps me tune out the other voices and to focus in on what I need to do. We need some noise-canceling headphones sometimes. We need to be able to tune out the voices of the crowd and listen to the voice of the one, the one who loves you. Who gets airtime in your brain? Who gets airtime? If someone were to go live in your head, would that be a pleasant experience? Sometimes for me it's not. It wouldn't be. It can be so distorted, so distracted, so much noise. Who do you, whose voice do you care about the most? Is it your friends? Is it social media? Is it the news? What is it? What is it for you? Is it even someone that's a, a good person in your life? Your spouse, your parents, those are good voices. 
but there's no voice that compares to the voice of Jesus. And so you need to listen to him. He's written you a lot of good letters here in Revelation. He's, he's written us a really good letter here in the church of Philadelphia. And he's saying, please have ears to hear it. Please receive my love. Please know that I go with you wherever I call you to go. I've already included you in my kingdom. You don't follow me on mission so that one day I might include you in my kingdom if you do a good job. You go out on mission because you know I've already included you in my kingdom and I love you. And that is the force, that is the, the power that can help us love our neighbor. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just I love this letter. It's a beautiful one. Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. And that's only possible in the church and in this world in whatever iteration we can see it to the extent that we experience love from you. Lord, I pray for the soul today who is here that is having a hard time believing, having a hard time hearing this message that, that they are loved. Lord, the, the power of shame to rob love from us, to, to think that we would not deserve your love and therefore when we hear about it, we wouldn't receive it. I pray against shame. I pray that for the, the ashamed person that they would know that, that what Jesus says is, I have loved you. I have loved you. And I pray that that love from you, Lord Jesus, would be so compelling so expansive in our souls that we would be able to love our neighbor through exhaustion, through exclusion, that we in our day and our time would be able to witness unlikely conversions because you have an open door for us and for so many in the world. Lord God, would we follow you knowing that we are included in your kingdom already? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.